The scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 22, 24 through 27. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. This is the word of the Lord. So we read that portion from Jeremiah 22 because it described King Jehoiakim as uh, the signet ring. And I hope that by the time we come to the end of the sermon today, we'll understand uh, what that means. Let me read now uh, the sermon text, which is from the book of Haggai, which is way back towards the end of the Old Testament. might want to go to Matthew and back up three books. And you'll find uh, Haggai, and I will read from chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And in the last verse of the book, verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together for our time in the word. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in his name we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit to make this text clear. I pray that you would grant to all of us here the grace of hearing with faith, that we would be convicted by your law and comforted by your gospel, strengthened by uh, your promise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been looking at the minor prophets this summer. And last week, Pastor Nick preached from the book of Nahum, where we read of the destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh, you remember, was the capital of Assyria, the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And that prophecy of Nahum was fulfilled in 612 B.C. when Babylon overthrew 
Nineveh. In a battle that Nick told us about, and we saw those uh, illustrations of it that included diverting the river so that the city of Nineveh, Nineveh was flooded in remarkable fulfillment of the words of Nahum. Well, it was just 25 years after that that Babylon pushed on farther south and also destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., which began the 70 years of exile foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. And now today's prophet, Haggai, preached after that, after the exile, as the people were returning from Babylon back to Jerusalem. The 70 years of exile are calculated from the fall of Jerusalem to the dedication of the rebuilt temple. But the temple took a while to build, and there were some delays along the way. So the story that I'm about to tell you took place more like 50 years after the exile, as the people are returning and just getting started on rebuilding the temple. So there's lots of people among the returning exiles who remember the destruction of the first temple. It was just 50 years ago. How many of you remember 1973? Really, how many of you remember 1973? A lot of us, right? I remember 1973. I was only five, but I do. I remember 1973. Some of you were probably in college, listening to Pink Floyd or whatever you were into back then. Point is, a lot of returning exiles remembered the destruction of the first temple. So now here's what happened when they first started rebuilding the temple. The story is told in Ezra 3.10. It says, quote, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, would say one side of the congregation, for his steadfast love endures forever says the other side of the congregation, just like in Psalm 136. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. What's going on? Why are the old men weeping? Because they remember the first temple. They remember the good old days. They remember the former glory of Jerusalem. And this new temple, this seems like nothing in their eyes. In the words of Haggai's co-laborer, Zechariah, whose book we will look at next week, they are despising the day of small things. They're despising the day of small beginnings. So that, of course, was a discouraging word to those who are beginning to rebuild. And you couple that discouragement with threats and opposition from the peoples around them, and the work on this second temple just ground to a halt for the next 17 years. And now it's at that moment, 17 years later, that the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, that I'll read now in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses 
while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Can you hear the echoes of thousands of sermons kicking off church building programs? You all remodeled your kitchens at home, but we've needed a new roof on the Christian education wing for years now. You better dig deep on this next pledge drive. God's going to blow your savings away. Don't worry. That's not where I'm going with this. That's not the application for us. First of all, as you all know, the church of the New Testament is not a building. But second, did you know that even in the Old Testament, God never commanded in the law for the people to build a temple? Now, a tabernacle, yes. There's all kinds of laws about building the tent of meeting and the most holy place and the sacrifices. That's all super important because it points to our need for Jesus, the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. But the temple, the big ornate building constructed around that, that's not in the Torah. That was David's idea, remember? 2 Samuel 7. David is in the prime of his life. He's at the peak of his powers, and he's about to start his midlife crisis. And he says, why should I live in a house of cedar while the ark of God is in a tent? I think I'll build a house for God. And God says, no. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And by the way, I think we all need to come to that moment of realization that life is not about what you do for God. It's about learning to trust what God has promised to do for you. So if you're discouraged because you keep asking yourself the question, oh, what have I really accomplished for God? Stop asking that question the wrong question. Instead, ask, what has God promised to do for me? What is God doing in my life right now, and how can I trust him through it all so that in season I will bear fruit wherever he has planted me? So God says to David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, and it is your son who will build a house for my name. And that was fulfilled in part when Solomon built the temple, but it's fulfilled ultimately when Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, comes and says, I will build my church. Now note, he didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. And he didn't say, I will build your church. <laughs> he says, I will build my church. And you all get to be a part of it. But God doesn't need you to build him a house. Jesus is already doing that. Jesus is building the house for God. Jesus is building his church. And we are like living stones in this spiritual house that he's building, says First Peter. 
So what is the application for us then, now that we've got that sorted out, that it's not about a church building program? What, what should we, how should we apply that to our lives? When Haggai says, why are you living in paneled houses while the house of God is in ruins? I hear that, and I'm convicted of self-centeredness. Why am I living for my own individualistic dream when I should be loving other people, building up the body so that we grow together into a holy temple proclaiming the glory of God? But sin makes us self-centered, turns us in on ourselves. When we're not walking in the Spirit, our minds naturally love to tell our own stories instead of the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And this is something I learned when studying pastoral counseling. Our minds are constant storytellers. In your head, you are always telling yourself the story of your life. And you're telling it, and you're retelling it, and you're spinning it in such a way to justify yourself. Or if you have a tender conscience, maybe you're telling it in a way that's condemning yourself and you keep beating yourself up. But either way, it's a story about yourself. And we've got to stop telling that story. It's not a good story. And when we think about God, we at first we just try to make him a character in our story. We look to him to make all of our dreams come true. But God loves us so much that he will make all of our dreams come untrue so that we can be captivated by his dream, which is way better. But we don't see that at first. We don't see how it's better. We need our eyes opened to see the glory of what God is doing in the church. And it's through the preaching of the word that our eyes are opened. So let's move on now to Haggai's second sermon, which I read this morning at the beginning before the sermon. God said in verse 3 of chapter 2, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. The big idea of the book of Haggai is to encourage us to resume our labor for the glory of God when we are discouraged by current conditions. The people are returning to Jerusalem after a dark, difficult season of exile, and they're just starting now to rebuild this downsized temple while the nations around them jeer and mock them. They need a word of encouragement. They need their eyes opened to know the hope to which God has called them. I have to wonder if there's a timely word in here for us at Kish. Now, I've only been here for a year, but as I've gotten to know you and taken the new membership class, I've learned that this congregation has been through some difficult trials and tribulations in recent years. I've also learned that it was not that many years ago that this congregation was about twice the size of what it is today. There may be a temptation to think that the glory days of Kish are behind us. But I want to encourage you this morning, assure you this morning, that there is much more glory to come. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. God 
is with us. That is the promise that enables us to be strong and to keep working. God is with us. And not because of any personal worthiness on our part, but because we call on the name of Jesus, whose name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Verse 5 says, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It doesn't matter how many people are in attendance. That's not how you measure the glory of the church. The glory of the church is the presence of God in our midst. Is God in attendance? That's what matters. He inhabits the praises of his people, and he is present with us when we worship in spirit and in truth. Now, it's been a minute since I was a pastor, and so a lot of my illustrations are dated. But when I was a pastor in the 90s and the 2000s, everybody was always talking about church growth and seeker sensitivity. But let me ask you a question. What is a true seeker of God? looking for in a church? Is it really just better coffee in a jungle gym in the nursery? What is a true seeker of God looking for in a church? The answer is God. Like by definition, right? If you're a seeker of God, the people whose hearts God is stirring to seek him are looking for him. So let us be people who seek him first. Let us worship in spirit and in truth and ask him to open our eyes to see his glory with us. Now in verses 6 to 9, I see another word of encouragement. The first word was the promise of his presence. Now we see the promise of future glory. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Now be sure to notice that he doesn't say, the latter house will be greater than the former. It's the latter glory that's greater than the former. The size of the house doesn't matter. Jesus wasn't impressed with the size of the house when he came and visited the temple, remember? He says, I tell you, not one of these stones will be left on another. They will all be thrown down. It's the latter glory that will be greater. And what is the latter glory? It's that God will once more Shake all nations, and the treasures of all nations will come in. And he says once more, because in the days of Haggai he shook all nations, and the exiles returned from Babylon, but he's going to do it again. And this prophecy is being fulfilled as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come streaming into the church. So when I assure you that there is greater glory to come for this congregation, I am, of course, not saying that I have a crystal ball and can tell you our attendance is about to double. What I am saying is that through our praying and preaching and praising and giving and going, we are part of the glorious end-time missionary expansion of the church. And I think it is very important for our own church health and for our own personal joy that we maintain awareness of God's work all around the globe. Last week we heard from the Glendennings and the work they're doing 
to send out laborers into what they called open windows, where others just see closed doors for the gospel. I thought that was really clever. We talk about closed country, the doors are closed there, well, we're going to find an open window if the door is closed and find some other way to get to the people who are unreached and need to hear the gospel. And we need regular remembers like regular reminders like that of the work of our missionaries. Because ultimately we're not just called to reach Stillman Valley for Christ, we're called to reach the world for Christ by preaching the gospel here in Stillman Valley. And you can't even imagine the way that God will use that for his global glory. Well, now we come to Haggai's third sermon that begins in verse 11 of chapter 2. And this sermon is delivered just two months after the last one. All the preaching in this book takes place in less than four months. It's like an ongoing conversation between the prophet and the discouraged people of God. But this time, he seems to be addressing a different source of discouragement. Perhaps now they've, they've, they've understood the message and they're no longer despising the day of small beginnings. Now they've heard God's promise that the latter glory will be greater than the former. But how are sinners like us going to be able to participate in this glorious work? How can we, with our unclean, defiled hands, rebuild this temple? And God's answer through Haggai uh, basically is, yes, you are defiled and unclean, but nevertheless, from this day on, I will bless you. Just grace. And we'll see when we come to the end where that grace comes from. But first, a somewhat obscure illustration of our uncleanness. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, said, yes, it does become unclean. Now this isn't easy to grasp on first reading, but the point is this. Sin is contagious. Holiness is not. You can become unclean by touching an unclean thing. But you can't become holy just by touching a holy thing. Now, I think we understand the first point well enough. Sin's contagious. You know, if you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas, right? So the church has, at various times in history, practiced varying degrees of separation from the world. We try to avoid temptation. We put rules in place to keep our kids from worldly influences. And there may be some practical benefit to that, but the danger comes when we start believing that separation from the world makes us holy. It doesn't, because we're already defiled. So how can we become clean? We can't catch it from anybody else. Joining a church won't make you holy. Hanging out with Christian friends and family won't make you holy. Rebuilding the temple will not make you holy. Becoming a missionary and seeing the latter glory stream into the church will not make you holy. Even the holy sacraments in and of themselves will not make you holy apart from faith. Holiness does not spread 
through indirect contact. Only direct contact with God makes you holy. Only receiving the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ makes you holy. Think again on Haggai's illustration. So the priest is is holding holy meat in the fold of his garment. Now what is holy meat? How did that meat become holy? The meat is holy because it's a piece of an animal that was offered in sacrifice. And those sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who made the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And so it's because we are united to Jesus by faith, because we are in Christ, even as Paul says, crucified with Christ. Because of that, we are now holy, because we are in direct contact with, yea, even indwelt by, the Spirit of the One who made the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. In that verse I read already this morning from 1 Peter where he says that we are living stones in the spiritual temple of the church, he goes on to say that we now offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why is our worship and our service acceptable to God? Because we offer it through Jesus Christ. Jesus said it is the altar that makes the gift sacred. Our offerings are acceptable, not because of our fervency or our purity. They are acceptable because we lay them on the altar of Jesus and none other. He is the only unblemished lamb. He made the only perfect sacrifice. The good news is that our imperfect sacrifices, our imperfect labor of love to build up the church, is acceptable to God because we offer it through Jesus Christ. Finally, let me show you one more way that the prophet Haggai points ahead to Jesus in the very last book of the verse that I'll read again, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. Now, I need to answer two questions before you're going to see Jesus in this verse. What is a signet ring? Who is Zerubbabel? First, what is a signet ring? Well, a signet ring is something that a king wears. The word signet in English comes from the same root as the word signature. They are both things that we use to make a document binding and official. So think of a signet ring as a big ring, like a class ring with lots of engraving on it. And you get a document that's coming to be authorized by the king. It's got a wax seal on it. And as the king presses down his ring upon that wax seal, it leaves an imprint. And now everybody who sees that sealed document will know that the king had authorized it. Now, who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel is the grandson of the king of Judah, who was carried away into exile to Babylon. We read about this morning in Jeremiah 22. That king's name was Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim. But that had to be really confusing to distinguish between those two names. So they started calling Jehoiakim Coniah, 
for short. And so the prophet Jeremiah delivered a word from the Lord to Kaniah in Jeremiah 22, verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So the king of Judah was like the signet ring on God's finger. But God is so angry that he tears it off and throws it away and sends him into exile. But now, through the prophet Haggai, God picks it up again. He chooses Zerubbabel, grandson of Kaniah, descendant of King David, ancestor of Jesus. You can find Zerubbabel's name in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And God puts the signet ring back on his finger to show that he's still keeping the promise that he made to David. There is still coming a son of David who will build the true temple and who will reign forever and ever. So Jesus is the signet ring. And and here's the picture that, that comes to my mind. It's like God the Father is sitting on the throne in heaven and he sends his son into the world in the incarnation. I imagine that like, like he's reaching his hand down into the world with his signet ring and touching us in Jesus and pressing his seal upon us. And the impression left upon our hearts is the indwelling Holy Spirit making us into his image. Maybe that's a helpful illustration of being sealed by the Spirit. But what I can say with full confidence is that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Christ for us, all of God's promises are signed, sealed, and delivered. It is authorized. It is guaranteed. It is finished. What promises have we heard this morning? He is with you. The latter glory will be greater than the former. The best is yet to come. Despite your uncleanness, you are holy in him. And from this day on, he will bless you. All those promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Amen.